0: Good morning, welcome, especially if you're visiting. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. We're at chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers in the Bible are what we call chapters. The little numbers are what we call verses. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. He's heard the Father pronounce his love upon him. Matthew chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, open our eyes this morning that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. Show us uh, in this passage, not only that we are sinners who often give in to temptation, but most of all, show us that Jesus is a great Savior who is equipped, who is ready, who is able to save us from our many sins and temptations. We pray in his name. Amen. One of my least favorite things about middle school and high school, among many things, was P.E. class. Not just because I didn't enjoy it, but, and not just because it was a place where I was often bullied, but most of all, because of those horrible days where you would have to show up and compete with other people, go through some kind of test to show where you ranked in relationship to everybody else. Uh, If you know anything about me, you may not be surprised to hear that I, in those days, had received many participation ribbons. I brought a lot more glory to my family name through the geography bowl than I did through P.E. In our passage today we have Jesus going through a test. The triumphant declarations of His baptism that we heard about last week are now colliding with the hard realities of suffering and weakness. What will the trial show about Jesus? My PE trials showed that I was pitifully weak pitifully slow. But Jesus' trial here in the wilderness shows us that He really is whom the Father said He was. He really is the beloved Son of God. He really is the one who can and will save His people from their sins. Look there uh, with the Bible open in front of you. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. I call this the strange guidance of God. The strange guidance of God. Jesus has just had this wonderful experience that we heard about last week at his baptism. Uh, He's begun his public ministry as God's Messiah. He's come to save a sinful people. Uh, There at his baptism, at the end of it, he received God's mighty spirit of power, and then he heard from the heavens the Father's loving affirmation of his relationship with him. But then in the very next verse, you hear that that same spirit Now leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, The word for temptation can also mean testing. Uh, Properly speaking, theologically speaking, God Himself does not ever actually tempt anyone to sin, uh, but He does test us. He does test us through His mysterious rule over all of our circumstances, including things like this sending Jesus into the wilderness. It's the Spirit that takes Jesus into the wilderness, where Jesus is then going to be tempted by the devil. Something like Moses fasting for 40 days and nights before he delivered God's law to the people of Israel, and with something of an echo of how Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, we also now hear that Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, We then hear that he becomes hungry, which is one of the great understatements of the Bible. Uh, It's not totally clear if uh, Jesus was miraculously sustained through these 40 days and nights without being hungry and then became hungry, Uh, but even if it was a miraculous sustenance, kind of like with Moses or Elijah, uh, the point is that Jesus really is suffering, that Jesus really is vulnerable, not only because he lacks food, but also because he lacks relationships. Uh, There's an early church father and pastor named Chrysostom. When he's commenting on this passage, he says, wow, you know, when you're alone, you're in a lot of danger uh, for sin and temptation. And he says, therefore, let us be flocking together continually. Jesus is in a place of great vulnerability. And so if we're going to be really able to understand this passage, we need to see and believe that Jesus really is human. I think a lot of Christians when push comes to shove, don't quite believe that. We need to see that Jesus really is suffering. Jesus really is lonely. Uh, Even though we as Christians believe that Jesus never actually sinned, he really was tempted by other people. He really did have to resist the pull of sin in a way that was far more painful and far more sustained for him than any of us will ever know. And that's not just because... Uh, We are far more numb to sin than Jesus ever was, which is true. And it's not just because Jesus uh, never actually gained the relief of giving in to sin like we do. This is real human suffering. Jesus did not use divine cheat codes to get through his ministry. He did not use cheat codes to escape God's will for him, even when it meant great pain and agony. And so even Jesus, this beloved Son of God, who heard this great voice from heaven about what God thought about him, how much God loved him, even he was led by God's mysterious providence into a place of suffering and lack in order to reveal and underscore who he really was, that he's really who the Father says he is. And so for us today, one of the points is that we shouldn't judge God's view of us We shouldn't judge how certain our relationship with him might be based on whatever painful circumstances we might find ourselves in. That's the strange guidance of God. But the meat of the passage concerns the questioned care of God. The questioned care of God. Jesus is hungry, he's alone, he's weak, he's frail, and he now meets Satan, the great demonic being whom the Bible says is in some sense the ruler over this world. Uh, He himself rules over a multitude of demons who are bent on destroying God's creation, especially humans, in defiance of God himself. Here in verse 3, he's simply called the tempter. Three temptations from the devil coming at Jesus from various angles, all three of them are meant to drive a wedge between him and the Father. And so therefore, all three of them are meant to derail Jesus' mission to rescue humanity from its sin. The first temptation here preys upon Jesus' suffering. It preys upon his suffering. The devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And so you can see what he's doing. It's very similar to what we often experience. The devil is saying to Jesus, he says, Oh, you're the beloved Son of God? Really? He says he delights in you? Then why are you suffering so much? Why are you so hungry? He must not really care for you after all. Maybe you have to take care of yourself. You see, the devil is seeking to turn Jesus' suffering into despair. He's seeking to get Jesus to doubt the Father's love for him, to take matters into his own hands. As God's messianic king, Jesus could have very easily turned the stones into bread. But to do so would have been for him to say, the Father no longer cares for me. I'm on my own. The devil is saying to him, as he so often says to us, you are only God's beloved when things are going well. You are only God's beloved when you can prove it, when you can see it, when you can taste it. And so Jesus responds in verse 4 by quoting Scripture. One of the subthemes of the passage is that Jesus overcomes temptation through his deep saturation in God's Word, God's works, God's promises. This is not really a passage about how we can fight temptation. That's kind of how I've heard it taught sometimes. It's not a how-to manual. But there is a part of it that, of course, shows us that we, too, should train ourselves with and by Scripture if we want to have victory over sin and despair. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8. We read part of this passage earlier in the service. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It comes from a part in the the book of Deuteronomy where Moses, uh, at the end of their wandering in the wilderness, is reminding them that God had purposefully made them hungry. God had chosen to not give them food before deciding to miraculously provide them food so that they would learn and see that he was the one who was really taking care of them the whole time, so that they would not depend on material sustenance or comfort in and of themselves. In the wider passage there in Deuteronomy, Moses, like we heard earlier, is warning the people over and over and over again. He's warning them about the great danger of the prosperity and the ease that they're about to experience in the promised land. Uh, He's warning them about how this prosperity and comfort is going to tempt them to think that they're self-sufficient, that they don't really need God, that they can and they should chase after idols instead. And so it's right in the midst of that warning That Moses says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes it now. Jesus knows that there is far, far more to life in God's world than ease and comfort and health. Suffering and lack should not and do not call into question God's care for us. And they shouldn't cause us to turn our back on God, to serve to ourselves instead It shouldn't cause us to look out for our own care, to think that we're on our own. We do need to eat bread. We should seek to be healthy. But when our wallets and our pantries are full, part of the point of this verse is that even then, God's really the one providing for you. We live all the time by the mouth of God, by the word of God. But when we suffer, when we do lack wealth, when we do lack comfort, when we're lonely, when we're sick, when there's a pandemic... We need to see and know more than ever that our life and blessing is ultimately in God's hand. That's why God intentionally, he says, brought Israel and now Jesus into a wilderness of hunger. And so one question that this should raise for us, I think, is this. Uh, Even apart from COVID, even before COVID, how much have we been focusing on our physical health and safety and sustenance? How does that compare to our concern for our spiritual health and safety. Something of far greater significance with far more serious consequences. Jesus deflects the devil's attack through his suffering, but now the devil shifts tactics. Instead of preying upon his weakness in the second temptation, the devil now preys upon his confidence. His confidence. Look at that. Look at verse 5. They've been down low in the wilderness, so now the devil takes Jesus up. He takes him up to the holy city of Jerusalem. He takes him to the tippity-top of the temple there in the middle of the city, and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command the angels concerning you on their hands, they will bear you up. And so Jesus is now not just in Jerusalem, which is its own holy city in the framework of um, Israel's story, and uh, worldview. He's not just in the holy city, he's on top of the holy temple. He's in this place of maximum holiness, this spiritual epicenter. And the devil says to him, oh wow, you really trust God to take care of you? You really believe in the Bible? Oh, that's great, why don't you prove it? Why don't you prove how much you trust God? Why don't you prove that you really believe what the Bible says. Because look, right here in Psalm 91, it says that God's not going to let you fall. God's not going to let you suffer. Don't you believe the Bible? And so you see he's still here calling into question whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God, then do this. And so he's kind of saying to Jesus, I think, hmm, yeah, looks like you're holding up your end of the deal. You're trusting him, I guess trusting Him to take care of you. But what about His end of the deal? Maybe He's forgotten about you. So why don't you find out? Show the world how much you trust Him. Find out for yourself if God's going to keep His promises. And so if the first temptation was about a kind of danger from being down low in suffering and lack, the second temptation is about a kind of danger from being up high A temptation to seek the spectacular and the certain and the glorious. There's probably a lot of people down there around the temple right in the middle of Jerusalem. Uh, Wouldn't they all be amazed? Wouldn't they quickly sign up for Jesus' program if they saw him jump off and get rescued by angels? And you see there that Satan is abusing Scripture to support this. Just because somebody has a Bible verse, just because you heard it on a podcast, just because somebody has a Ph.D., doesn't mean they're right. And so Jesus responds to a bad use of Scripture with a good use of Scripture. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes again from the early chapters of Deuteronomy, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God is again, just like he would in chapter 8, he's warning them about the danger of their impending prosperity after years of wandering in the wilderness. The verse comes from a bit where Moses is telling them not to do what they had done earlier, to put God to the test by angrily grumbling about how thirsty they were. Uh, In Deuteronomy, to put God to the test means doubting that He's really with you. It means doubting that God will provide for you in the ways that He's shown He can provide for you, that He can provide for you in the ways that He's promised He's going to provide for you in the ways that he's already demonstrated that he can do. It's a temptation about neglecting the things that God has already given you and the paths he's already commanded you. It's a temptation about choosing instead your own foolish confidence about what makes sense to you and presuming that God will just work it out somehow. The obvious example of this kind of thing is the prosperity gospel, one of the great and horrible exports of America to the world. This idea that you can name it and claim it, that if you just believe enough, if you have enough faith, God will make you rich and healthy and comfortable. But it comes in other forms too, maybe subtler forms. A couple of years ago, we knew somebody who bought a house that was way more expensive than they could possibly afford. They did it, they claimed, because they trusted God. God would provide for them. God knew what was good for their family. God wanted what was good for their family. And this, of course, to them, was good for them. We know somebody who claims to be a Christian who has taken up with a mistress in the last few years because his wife has very severe Alzheimer's. And he likes to tell himself that God doesn't want him to be lonely and that his wife is probably in heaven already anyways but it can come in even more subtle forms. Lots of Christians say that they don't really need to come to church regularly. They're busy, they're tired, lots of other reasons. They tell themselves that God will just figure out a way to take care of them and their family spiritually some other way. I've watched lots of parents hand their kids a smartphone way before they are ready to handle its many dangers and temptations, but they justify it because they want their kids to fit in Doesn't God want my kids to have friends fit in? They justify it because they figure that God will just bless their good intentions and take care of it somehow. I've known Christians who have chased their careers, their retirements, comfort and ease, not really giving much of a thought to church, to community, figuring I can figure all that stuff out later. The main thing is to be comfortable. There are all ways that we neglect what God has given us Instead, choosing to be confident in our own ideas about what God should do or will do. Jesus here is being truly tempted to do the same thing that we all do all the time. But just like with the first temptation, Jesus is victorious over it. The final temptation, the third one, is in many ways the climax. It's the most intense one, I think. Uh, The first one preyed upon Jesus' suffering. The second one preyed upon his confidence. The third one preys upon his mission, his mission. In verse 8, Satan now takes Jesus even higher up. We go from low to high to now much higher. He's on a very tall mountain, and there he gives Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Rome, China, the Mayans, Habsburgs, Ottomans, the Windsors, even America, it's all there. Satan says, I'll give it all to you. You can have everything. You can do whatever you want. You can rule it in any way you want. Isn't this what you came for? Didn't you come to save the world as God's king? All you have to do is bow down and worship me once. It's a pretty small gesture, isn't it? To get so much, to be able to do so much with his power as God's spirit anointed king. Imagine what Jesus could do if he ruled over the entire world as its dictator. Jesus could feed everybody, he could end war, he could invent a vaccine that would end all disease, a medicine that would end all cancer, he could blanket the world with churches and missionaries and schools and hospitals and homeless shelters. The temptation is a lot like one of the main themes of Lord of the Rings. It's been a while since I've talked about Lord of the Rings, so I owe this to you guys. kind of the the heart of that story is that there's this ring that if you have the ring, it was made by a very evil kind of Satan-like figure. Uh, If you have the ring, you get very powerful and you can do lots of things that you want to do. And so one of the main themes there is some of the better characters and the good characters wrestling with the idea, well, what if we used it? Aren't we motivated well enough to use it for good rather than evil? Uh, Why shouldn't we? Uh, The good wizard Gandalf is tempted by it. Uh, but he knows that it would eventually end in misery. He says, The way of the ring to my heart is through pity. Pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Later on, uh, another good character, the elf queen, Galadriel, knows that she would initially use the ring for fighting injustice, but that in the end it would only turn her to dominate the weak. She says, I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible. All shall love me and despair. Jesus has offered the entire world. He's offered all of its political power, all of its political processes, all of its political policies, his to do whatever he wants with. And it really does appeal to him. He loves the world. He's come for the world. He's come for us. But he says no. No amount of global prosperity or political power, not even the loftiest goal or the best intention, or the most fervent desire to do good, none of it is worth even one little act of disobedience. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus will gain the world, but He's not going to do it through a shortcut of disobedience. He's going to do it through the long and the dark road of obedience. Only after the cross is Jesus going to receive the crown. It's only going to be with holes in his hands and a big hole in his side that the resurrected Jesus will say to his disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So again, Jesus overcomes the temptation of the devil. And the questioned care of God now gives way the victorious Son of God. In verse 10, I love this. There's so much loaded into this. Verse 10, Jesus simply commands the devil to leave. And so even in some sense, the devil is the ruler over this fallen world and all of its kingdoms. As God's Son, Jesus still rules over him. Uh, Jesus does not make a polite request here. Satan leaves with his tail between his legs. You hear in verse 11 that the devil leaves, obeys him immediately, and then God sends his angels to care for Jesus. And so you see here that God's care was never absent from his beloved son, even if the devil tried to convince him otherwise. Here at the very end of it, God sends angels to take care of him. The father really does care for his son, but he does it in his own timing, just like he does for us. Jesus' victory over these three temptations shows us that he really is God's perfectly obedient son. Remember, that's why the father was delighting in him at his baptism. We need a Savior who does obey, even in the face of agonizing temptation, precisely because we don't obey. We give in to these kinds of things all the time. We're always doubting God's care in the midst of our suffering. We're always flippantly presuming upon his blessing while we lean on our own ideas of what's right while we neglect what God's already given us to do. We all greedily pursue power and convenience over other people instead of keeping God the priority. And so in one sense, our Savior is like us. He really was tempted. That's a great encouragement for us when we too are being tempted. But even better, our Savior is also unlike us. He never gave into it. We need a perfect king. We need a perfect priest. We need a perfect mediator if we're going to have any hope of being accepted and forgiven by God. And that's just what He is. That's just what Jesus is. This is why you can be confident when you approach God in church or in prayer. It's why you can be confident to find there not wrath and judgment and anger like you deserve, like I deserve, but why you can be confident to find love and mercy, and patience. We'll close here with a couple verses from Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather we have one who in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now listen to the conclusion. Jesus was tempted, but he didn't sin. Now listen to where the conclusion lies. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how skittish we are about approaching you for help. How quickly we run and hide in the dark, thinking that uh, we're left to ourselves that we can only stand before you based on our own obedience and goodness. Help us to see in Jesus' victory over sin and temptation, uh, not a discouragement to approach you, as if that means that you don't want anything to do with people like us, but rather help us to see in a, an encouragement to go to you to find help and mercy. You love to give us help. You love to give us mercy because you love your son Jesus, and we are united to him. Help us to believe in him. Help us to trust in him. Help us to see that in Him we have everything we need as we face sin and temptation in our own lives. We pray in His name. Amen.